Across the globe, there are so many needs to help save lives. Scores of people are hungry and need of food, thirsty and need of water. Thousands upon thousands are trapped in human trafficking. Countless millions are getting preyed upon on the internet. There is an untold number of victims needing rescue, healing, and hope. Crisis Aid is in the nitty-gritty of ministry, and they have a front-row seat to God's incredible work of redemption. That's on this Action in Ministry. Inspiring you to be the hands. Empowering you to be the feet. Strengthening you to be the heart of Christ for others. Action. Action. Action in Ministry. Hi, I'm Rachel Legute, and this is Action in Ministry. Many of us would say ministry is great, but ministry is hard. It's sometimes hard to be bold in sharing our faith. It's a challenge to know how to counsel hurting people. Ministry requires sacrifice. It requires unselfishness, humility, and work. But few might understand the intensity of hard that Cindy Malott enters into every day. She's the Director of Advocacy Services at Crisis Aid International. She's on the front lines of saving lives every day. Cindy, it's so great to have you here with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Crisis Aid International covers a broad range of types of aid. Can you give us a brief overview of what this ministry and organization is all about? Absolutely. So a lot of Crisis Aid's work is focused in, as you said, globally. So we do a tremendous amount of work in East Africa. Mm -hmm. Everything across the board from emergency provision of water and food. And also we have a safe home there, which is actually how Crisis Aid originally started working with trafficking survivors for um, women and girls who've been trafficked and orphanage. Um, But things have grown just in an amazing way, uh, thanks to generosity of a lot of amazing, amazing people. And and, uh, we do every, so again, it's grown not just from that emergency food provision, water wells, things like that, emergency shelter for women and girls to an entire girls village um, that also provides vocational training. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a pediatric hospital now that we just opened, which is absolutely amazing, really focuses on undernourished parents and malnourished children and babies, um, a dairy operation that's sustainable, and mm. a high-protein grain milling program that's also sustainable. So the programs there are focused not just to provide emergency needs to life-sustaining needs, but also sustainable job growth, sustainable programs for communities so that they're not just responding to one emergency, but building for a future. Um, we also bring that into our work here in the U.S., which is largely focused here in the St. Louis area. Since the COVID um, pandemic, in the last three months, we've provided food for over 10,000 families, 18,000 children through our community helping community program. And then that kind of brings me to what I do with Crisis Aid, which is really focused on trafficking, um, human trafficking, internet crimes against children here in the St. Louis area. First and foremost, Crisis Aid has a refuge home for women and girls who have been trafficked. I mean, mm-hmm. in St. Louis, it's a safe home. It's a transitional living program. So we will we'll do emergency crisis shelter, but the goal is to provide more of a longer term transitional yeah. program from going from an emergency crisis situation into a you know long term permanent living situation um, as the goal by the time they leave the program. It's an incredible range of services that you offer, from food to actually helping people 
heal and restore their lives out of a situation where they've been trafficked. That's really a lot of services to be offering. And you're the director of advocacy services. Can you tell us a little bit about what your role looks like with the organization? Sure. Well, my focus is here with the um, program for victims of basically who've experienced trafficking or internet-based crimes against children. So I myself work directly out of a police department is where my office, where I'm located right now is where my office is. So we really partner strongly with uh, St. Louis County Police Department. The supervisor that, you know, is the commander of the Human Trafficking Task Force for the Eastern District of Missouri, and he's the deputy commander of the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. So I work with that unit to provide advocacy and support services to not just those individuals in our we're going into our residential program, but there's a very, very large number of particularly young, tends to be more children and young people, but also adults um, who have experienced trafficking and, and children that are identified in the internet crimes against children, give them information, give them tools, help them with safety planning, a safe place to be. Sometimes they're referred into our refuge program, but then also, you know, try to mitigate as much of the difficulties. No one can eliminate that but to try to mitigate that and make it as safe an environment for those young people as possible. You were talking a little bit about how the the pandemic that we're all living through right now has really increased the need for food aid and aid of that nature for people who are struggling. But are you seeing that the the times that we're living in right now have impacted people who are being trafficked and has it increased or decreased um, seeing how so many people are turning to the internet these days, are you seeing an uptick in this type of crime as well? So with trafficking, it's been pretty consistent. Um, unfortunately, it's always consistent, which is sad. There's some misinformation. One thing I'm commonly hearing is people talking about, um, and this has not bearing on mask or no mask, but people saying, well, trafficking victims are being masked. And now with COVID, you know, people are wearing that's not really the dynamics of trafficking. With trafficking, particularly with young people, it's really looking for very vulnerable young people. And, and it can be adults as well, but utilizing and manipulating them psychologically, emotionally, with intim- and, and there is intimidation and violence or you know survival needs or things like that. It's, we don't see as much, there's not children being masked and walk down the street, that sort of thing. Um, but it's just continue to be very consistent. And when you see those emergency needs like food and shelter, rise in the community, you know that that's, an, that's a vulnerable population, that the numbers are rising. Where we've seen a distinct increase uh, is in the internet crimes against children, which the way that interconnects why we do work with both those populations is for our years working with, like we've worked with this police unit for probably over 10 years at this point very closely. Um, and what the, the supervisor and I were seeing repeatedly was and this matches national statistics is 76% is the national statistic and is very consistent with what we see of underage sales of girls for sex initiated online. We also know 90%, that's a national statistic, again, very consistent with what we see of young people, children, and young adults who've been trafficked experienced child sexual abuse prior to the trafficking, 90%. So we knew we really needed to put some interventions and support in place for families with children that were identified in internet crimes where they were being targeted by adults or solicited online for sex by adults. Where that ties into COVID is you've now got, and this is why we believe we're seeing this increase, is we've now got these kids who usually might have been in school. Now everybody's 
relying online. You've got kids who are home all the time in many cases, and they are not even allowed to socialize in person with other peers. And you have predators that are very good at what they do. You have adult predators who are going online. They deliberately will go in and target child-friendly sites. And I say child, teen, you know, social media sites, but everything from video games that are geared towards very young children to online social media sites. And they know what they're doing. They know how to target these kids. So you've got a whole pool now of kids that are really completely reliant, very isolated on and struggling with, you know, depression and things like that, like adults are because of not being able to get out and socialize. So you've got this whole pool of very vulnerable young kids. And now you've got the pool of perpetrators that have know exactly what they're doing. And now some of them are even unemployed. So are working from home or having more opportunity to prey on kids. So it's almost like a perfect storm for this type of abuse. And it was already extremely high. Um, last year, we provided services to over 400 children and their families. The statistics that you're that you're saying are just devastating to hear that there are people who are young people and adults alike who are living through these just devastating situations. And yet you're a part of a ministry that's seeking to help this huge problem, like you said, in America and abroad, what does life look like for the victims prior to you coming into contact with them? I work with everyone from, you know, very young children. We see kids who are targeted online or who are, are seeing things online that they don't understand and aren't able to process that are sexually explicit. So they, like we have one young lady who saw really sexually explicit cartoons of a superhero character, female so she was going online, this like six-year-old and kind of trying to mimic that. And then adults started targeting her. Um, so we see everyone from people, from young children who have amazing families that really care, but just have no idea that this was a risk and what their children could access online. So they're devastated. So it's for those individuals and those families, it's more about providing information on internet safety education tools, um, kind of safety planning in the home. So that looks very different from maybe a young person who's been on the street and been trafficked. That young person, in many cases, has no family really to rely on. But I don't want to paint a broad picture and say that trafficking victims only come from this specific circumstance, but we do know the risk factors are much higher. For, there's poverty, about 46% to 53% on any given year of the clients I see that are identified as trafficking survivors also have been diagnosed with a mild to more advanced learning disability or cognitive disability. And you also have those other risk factors, prior child sexual abuse. For those young people, oftentimes they have nothing. Um, they have no support system in place. I'm the only person that they ever thought cared about them or has shown any concern for them was actually someone that was using them and saw them as basically a renewable resource to use and abuse. So they're very confused about trust, about relationships. Sometimes they need emergency, immediate things, clothes, food, um, somewhere to sleep at night. Traffickers encourage the use of different drugs. Um, so we see a lot of young people, young adults and teens who are unfortunately struggling with serious drug addictions, mental illness. Part of that may be just related to trauma they've experienced. We know homeless youth are broached usually within 48 hours, if not sooner. That's according to the National Center for missing exploited children, kids on the street to be basically sell them, be trafficked or sell themselves for sex. 
really across the board. I have everyone from little ones with really, you know, amazing supportive family units to young people and kids that are basically on their own or have been abused by everyone around them that was supposed to protect them. What about parents who might be concerned about what their children are doing online? Do you have any advice for them? Something that you could um, share with them or things they could be doing? Absolutely. Um, Some really basic things are be really cognizant of how much time your children are spending online. And I know that's extremely difficult right now with COVID. So hard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But average kids spend about seven hours a day online outside of schoolwork. So that's a little scary. So consider things like, particularly for younger kids, restricting, but we see this with adolescents too, restrict use of online electronics that are can go online or internet accessible to common areas of the home. Even if it's a little bit of privacy and it's off to the side, if you, or if you're going to have your teen is maybe going to be on their phone, at times when they have their phone, consider that bedroom door has to be open and it has to be because you're taught, we see a lot of times kids are being solicited to send photos. Um, the other really big thing, if I were to name one thing that's most important, I can give you a lot of little safety tips like that, is be active and aware. Look at phones, get conversations, have access to that. If you don't learn, there's some amazing internet safety education tools that you can access through the Missouri Internet Crimes Against Children website. If you're listening to this somewhere outside of this area, you could go on the National Center Missing and Exploited Children has some of those as well. Um, and you can access that from anywhere. But I would say talk to your children about healthy boundaries because one thing we try to do as parents is you try to warn your children about all these scary, creepy people. And you show them a news story if they're old enough, someone disappeared or they met this person who said that that's never going to work. It's good to be clear and honest about the risks, but talk to your kid about healthy boundaries because these perpetrators are so good at what they do, how they target kids nine times out of 10 is they're going to come across to that child as a peer or someone who's maybe just a little bit older. It might be they're talking to a 13-year-old and they identify as a 17 or 18-year-old, um, not 35 or whatever age they are, um, or 45. Um, but they're going to present. They're going to be very good. They're going to try to have common interests, show a lot of, oh my gosh, your writing is so beautiful. Your artwork is so beautiful. I'm really looking for ways they can really connect with that child on an emotional level and then start manipulating them for either sexually explicit photos, send me a video, oh my gosh, you're so beautiful. They use those manipulation tools much more than there's going to be like a threat. The child's never going to see them. They're going to see them as their friend, a peer that's really interested in them, maybe a faux romantic relationship, but they're not going to, no matter how much we warn them, and I think for my age and, and even younger, we tend to think of people you know in real life and people you know online. But we got to remember kids have grown up online. They don't see it that way. They think they have their friends and that's just as much a real person, even if they've never met or seen that person. And they think they know that person, that false sense of safety as someone that they know from school. So just kind of talking through those things as opposed to trying to just warn them of the boogeyman, so to speak. We talk yeah. about someone's pressuring you to do something that you don't want to do. Someone ask you for photographs and let them feel safe in talking to you about that. Um, if they feel like you're going to explode or freak out, or I hear that term a lot, then they're going to be scared to talk with you about it. So that would be my suggestion would really be helping instill in them their own boundaries. And that'll not only help with online stuff, but in-person relationships as well. Oh, well, thank you so much as a parent. Thank you so much for some practical tips too, to, to help keep our kids safe and and be proactive in making sure that they're 
healthy and safe in their digital experiences as well. You're a faith-based organization. And so as you come into contact and connection with people who are hurting on such a deep level, how does being a faith-based organization make a difference in how you offer service to them? People's faith and I believe for the majority of the people I worked with in my 30 years, not every every single person, but the majority, that faith was a huge part of their healing. Um, and I think recognizing that and you know helping that person to reach into that to utilize that as a strength is an amazing gift. Advocacy is not just providing information, support, and resources. It's also that emotional support piece. And that's where I feel like God touches my heart to hopefully give me the empathy, the warmness, the openness to connect with that person on a personal level. And that's that's huge part of advocacy. And I think we don't look at that enough. Um, but showing God's love and having that be something that people can experience in their healing, not just being told, but being shown is really kind of the foundation of crisis aid. I would imagine that faith plays a really big role in the lives of the workers in your organization as well, that Absolutely. Uh, faith is not just something that helps the, the clients get through it, but also yeah. is important for you as well. It is. It's important for all of us. And I think that it's an amazing dynamic at Crisis Aid because of that faith base. The most supportive environment that I've ever been in as far as someone who works with crisis. My focus area and additional advocacy is really focused on trafficking survivors and internet crimes against children. I'll be honest, you hear some of the most horrific things imaginable. Um, and on a day-to-day basis, someone, the young person who's gone through things that many adults could not survive. Um, and I even imagine the horrors. And they're trying to be normal teenagers or they're trying to function and they're trying to do their homework now and they're trying to adjust to some normalized life. Everybody really plays their part in supporting each other. Our faith is a big part of that. Maybe alongside that, I I mean, I'm listening to you talk. I'm a mom. I have a six and an eight-year-old. And um, some of the things that you've said have just actually made me stop and gasp a little bit to think about a six-year-old being in this situation. You have to run into some of the darkest things as you are getting into the to the stories of the people that you're serving and caring for. And that has to be hard. How do you keep at it day after day? What gives you the energy to keep taking one step forward in the work that you do? Years ago, I share I was diagnosed with cancer years ago and I'm fine. But at the time, I remember when I first had to tell people, they get this very sad look on their face. And anyone who has been through something like that knows exactly what I'm talking about. Because you almost hate to say it because people are going to get this look, this sad look, and they look at you and like, oh, and their voice gets really low and they'll be like, oh, that must be so hard. And it's a genuine kind place in their heart. But what sometimes it's hard to explain because it's, again, it sounds odd when I say it, but I love my job. It's amazing. There are hard parts. There's times when I'll be honest, I struggle with, I have to be aware when I'm listening to children tell their story or make their report. Um, or they're talking to me about what they've been through. And I'm listening to this, you know, 12-year-old who's had everybody in her life who you normally would assume is going to protect you has violated you in the most horrific ways. I get angry. And I, but I have to remember that if that comes across my face, if they see that, they're going to assume it's disgust with them or, you know, mm-hmm. anger with them or blaming them. 
there are hard parts. I'm not going to deny that. I get to be in a position to help people um, and, and, be a, and be a part of, for many of them, what they view as a part of their healing, a part of them getting through some of the most horrible things and that, they, that you could imagine a young person going through or helping a family through a really critical time. And they're terrified and they're scared and they realize, you know, their, you know, nine-year-old's been communicating with the 45-year-old, you know, uh, pedophile or sex predator from another state and is sending them, you know, making arrangements to meet them or whatever. So those are things that, that's a gift to get to see. When I get to see the girls in the safe home who I know their histories and what they've been through. And when I see them being regular teenagers or having to clean, you know, aggravated because they've got to clean up their room or these things. <laughs> Such a joy. Yeah, it is. <laughs> People don't realize. I'm like, I love to hear them arguing about silly yeah. stuff, you know, because that's oh. what teenagers should be arguing about. Not where am I going to stay and being sold to multiple men in a night. You look at these girls and you can't imagine. I know what they've been through because I saw them that night. You know, I'm with the law enforcement when they do proactive operations and get the young women girls out. And then I see them, you know, nine months later or a year later, starting to act like teenage girls. And that's an amazing thing. And I think people don't realize. So that's when I say how, what a gift it is to get to do this job. It really is. And what a gift it is to the world that you're doing it as well. If people are feeling like they have a desire to help and to be a part of this type of work, are there volunteer opportunities or partnerships or things that people can join with Crisis Aid, either if they live here in the St. Louis area or abroad? Absolutely. So if you're interested, you can go to our website, crisisaid.org. It's just like it sounds. There's a lot of things. Obviously, donations are always extremely helpful. We need those. But we do recognize that sometimes, especially now with COVID, there's a lot of job loss. Or sometimes people want to be more in-depthly involved. Here in St. Louis, there are opportunities because of COVID. We're having to be a little bit careful. But if you have a gift or something that you think might be helpful that you could share, it could be anything across the board. We have groups of men and women who come in and do a construction project and we were trying to, and we're still working on that kind of around COVID, refurbishing some of the bedrooms that the girls have at the home and the women have at the home. So they might be something like that where they're not necessarily, their gift isn't, I think I can come and work directly with these young women who have been traumatized, but here's something I can do to help. We have people who do want to work directly with women and girls, but they maybe have something to share. I had a woman who contacted and offered to do a sewing class. So obviously we do background checks and all that sort of thing, but she comes in and every once in a while we'll do a sewing class to teach some basic life skills. We had another woman who has a cosmetology license and I was retired, but wanted to help. She comes in and does, you know, self-care through spa. And she'll do things with the women sometimes on the adult side. And then we have, a, you know, the teen program also and work with our adolescent girls too. And they love it. We have Abundant Life Yoga, which is faith-based yoga program. A woman comes in and does yoga classes for our campus. Um, we are always looking for life skills classes and support or you want to do a fundraiser. So appreciate that. But you can, mm-hmm. anything you're interested in, you can go to our website. I love that there are so many opportunities and If you don't see one that fits you today, you can create an opportunity to serve that fits your skills and your gifts. And it is so critical that if you're feeling moved to do something and to serve, um, to to reach out and to and to do that thing because the needs are so great. Well, I think a lot of people hear you know these type of stories or or these interviews and they think, oh, I want to do something, and then they forget about it. Put it in your calendar. People will appreciate what you have to offer. Mm. Well, Cindy, thank you so much for the work that you do. I know that it 
has to be the hugest of blessings to the people that you are serving and helping through their journey. And thank you for coming by and sharing with us today about the work that you do and the work of Crisis Aid International. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about these issues too. At the end of Colossians chapter one, the Apostle Paul writes of his drive to persevere through hard things for Christ. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. The road of ministry is often paved with toil, with struggle. But how encouraging it is to know that it is God's energy and His power working in us to do exactly what He's called us to do. And when the road is hard, keep teaching, keep warning, because it's all for Christ's sake. That's Action and Ministry. I'm Rachel Legutte. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to this podcast. Thank you for listening to Action in Ministry. We'd love to hear how you and your church are ministering to your community. To submit ideas for this podcast, visit our website, lhm.org forward slash action, and send us an email.